Chapters 25 through 27 of The Masquerader. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. The Masquerader by Catherine Cecil Thurston. Chapter 25. Having taken a definite step in any direction, it was not in Loder's nature to wish it retraced. His face was set, but set with determination, when he closed the outer door of his own rooms and passed quietly down the stairs and out into the silent court. The thought of Chilcote, his pitiable condition, his sordid environments, were things that required a firm will to drive into the background of the imagination. But a whole inferno of such visions would not have daunted Loder on that morning, as, unobserved by any eyes, he left the little courtyard with its grass, its trees, its pavement, also distastefully familiar, and passed down the strand towards life and action. As he walked his steps increased in speed and vigor. Now, for the first time, he fully appreciated the great mental strain that he had undergone in the past ten days, the unnatural tension, the suppressed but perpetual sense of impending recall, the consequently high pressure at which work and even existence had been carried on, and as he hurried forward the natural reaction to this state of things came upon him in a flood of security and confidence, a strong realization of the temporary respite and freedom for which no price would have seemed too high. The moment for which he unconsciously lived ever since Chilcote's first memorable proposition was within reach at last, safeguarded by his own action. The walk from Clifford's Inn to Grosvenor Square was long enough to dispel any excitement that his interview had aroused, and long before the well-known house came into view he felt sufficiently braced mentally and physically to seek Eve in the morning-room where he instinctively felt she would still be waiting for him. Thus he encountered and overpassed the obstacle that had so nearly threatened ruin, and with the singleness of purpose that always distinguished him he was able, once having passed it, to dismiss it altogether from his mind. From the moment of his return to Chilcote's house, no misgiving as to his own action, no shadow of doubt, rose to trouble his mind. His feelings on the matter were quite simple. He had inordinately desired a certain opportunity. One factor had arisen to debar that opportunity, and he, claiming the right of strength, had set the barrier aside in the simplicity of the reasoning lay its power to convince, and were a tonic needed to brace him for his task, he was provided with one in the masterful sense of a difficulty set at naught. For the man who has fought and conquered one obstacle feels strong to vanquish a score. It was on this day, at the reassembling of Parliament, that Fraid's great blow was to be struck. In the ten days since the affair of the caravans had been reported from Persia, public feeling had run high, and it was upon the pivot of this incident that Loder's attack was to turn, for, as Lakely was fond of remarking, in the scales of public opinion one dead Englishman has more weight than the whole eastern question. It had been arranged that, following the customary procedure, Loder was to rise after questions at the morning sitting and ask leave to move the adjournment of the House on a definite matter of urgent public importance upon which 
leave having been granted by the rising of forty members in his support, the way was to lie open for his definite attack at the evening sitting. And it was with a mind attuned to this plan of action that he retired to the study immediately he had breakfasted and settled to a final revision of his speech before an early party conference should compel him to leave the house. But here again circumstances were destined to change his program. Scarcely had he sorted his notes and drawn his chair to Chilcote's desk than Renwick entered the room with the same air of important haste that he had shown on a previous occasion. "'A letter from Mr. Fraid, sir, but there's no answer,' he said with unusual brevity. Loder waited till he had left the room. Then he tore the letter open. He read, "'My dear Chilcote, Lakely is the recipient of special and very vital news from Miss Shedd unofficial but none the less alarming acts of russian aggression towards british traders are reported to be rapidly increasing and it is stated that the authority of the consulate is treated with contempt pending a possible confirmation of this i would suggest that you keep an open mind on the subject of tonight's speech by adopting an anticipatory even an unprepared attitude you may find your hand materially strengthened I shall put my opinions before you more explicitly when we meet. Yours faithfully, Herbert Frayde. The letter, worded with Frayde's usual restraint, made a strong impression on its recipient. The thought that his speech might not only express opinions already tacitly held, but voice a situation of intense and national importance struck him with full force. For many minutes after he had grasped the meaning of Frayde's message, he sat neglectful of his notes, his elbows resting on the desk, his face between his hands, stirred by the suggestion that here might lie a greater opportunity than any he had anticipated. Still moved by this new suggestion, he attended the party conclave that Fraid had convened, and afterwards lunched with and accompanied his leader to the house. They spoke very little as they drove to Westminster for each was engrossed by his own thoughts. Only once did Fraid allude to the incident that was paramount in both their minds. Then, turning to Loder with a smile of encouragement, he had laid his fingers for an instant on his arm. Chilcote, he had said, when the time comes, remember you have all my confidence. Looking back upon that day, Loder often wondered at the calmness with which he bore the uncertainty. To sit apparently unmoved and wait without emotion for news that might change the whole tenor of one's action would have tried the stoicism of the most experienced. To the novice it was well-nigh unendurable. And it was under these conditions and fighting against these odds that he sat through the long afternoon in Chilcote's place, obeying the dictates of his chief. But if the day was fraught with difficulties for him, it was fraught with dullness and disappointment for others. For the undercurrent of interest that had stirred at the Easter adjournment and risen with added force on this first day of the new session was gradually but surely threatened with extinction as hour after hour passed, bringing no suggestion of the battle that had on every side been tacitly expected. Slowly and unmistakably, speculation and dissatisfaction crept into the atmosphere of the house as moment succeeded moment and the opposition made no sign was frayed shirking the attack 
or was he playing a waiting game? Again and again the question arose, filling the air with a passing flicker of interest. But each time it sprang up, only to die down again as the ordinary business of the day dragged itself out. Gradually, as the afternoon wore on, daylight began to fade. Loder, sitting rigidly in Chilcote's place, watched with suppressed inquiry the faces of the men who entered through the constantly swinging doors, but not one face so eagerly scanned carried the message for which he waited. Monotonously and mechanically the time passed. The government, adopting a neutral attitude, carefully skirted all dangerous subjects, while the opposition, acting under Fraid's suggestion, assisted rather than hindered the program of postponement. For the moment the eagerly anticipated reassembling threatened dismal failure, and it was with a universal movement of weariness and relief that at last the house rose to dine. But there are no possibilities so elastic as those of politics. At half-past seven the house rose in a spirit of boredom and disappointment, and at eight o'clock the lobbies, the dining-room, the entire space of the vast building was stirred into activity by the arrival of a single telegraphic message. The new development for which Freight had waited came indeed, but it came with a force he had little anticipated. With a thrill of awe and consternation men heard and repeated the astounding news that, while personally exercising his authority on behalf of British traders, Sir William Bryce Field, Council General at Meshed, had been fired at by a Russian officer and instantly killed. The interval immediately following the receipt of this news was too confused for detailed remembrance. Two ideas made themselves slowly felt. A deep horror that such an event could obtrude itself upon our high civilization, and a strong personal dismay that so honored, distinguished, and esteemed a representative as Sir William Bryce Field could have been allowed to meet death in so terrible a manner. It was in the consciousness of this feeling, the consciousness that, in his own person, he might voice not only the feelings of his party, but those of the whole country, that Loder rose an hour later to make his long-delayed attack. He stood silent for a moment, as he had done on an earlier occasion, but this time his motive was different. Roused beyond any feeling of self-consciousness, he waited as by right for the full attention of the house. Then quietly, but with self-possessed firmness, he moved the motion for adjournment. Like a match to a train of powder the word set flame to the excitement that had smoldered for weeks, and in an atmosphere of stirring activity a scene of such tense and vital concentration as the house has rarely witnessed he found inspiration for his great achievement. To give Loder's speech in mere words would be little short of futile. The gift of oratory is too elusive, too much a matter of eye and voice and individuality, to allow of cold reproduction. To those who heard him speak on that night of April 18th the speech will require no recalling, and to those who did not hear him there would be no substitute in bare reproduction. In the moment of action it mattered nothing to him that his previous preparations were to a great extent rendered useless by this news that had come with such paralyzing effect. In the sweeping consciousness of his own ability he found added joy in the freedom it opened up, 
he ceased to consider that by fate he was a conservative, bound by traditional conventionalities. In that great moment he knew himself sufficiently a man to exercise whatever individuality instinct prompted. He forgot the didactic methods by which he had proposed to show knowledge of his subject, both as a past and a future factor in European politics. With his own strong appreciation of present things, he saw and grasped the vast present interest lying beneath his hand. For fifty minutes he held the interest of the house, speaking insistently, fearlessly, commandingly on the immediate need of action. He unhesitatingly pointed out that the news which had just reached England was not so much an appalling fact as a sinister warning to those in whose keeping lay the safety of the country's interest. Lastly, with a fine touch of eloquence, he paid tribute to the steadfast fidelity of such men as Sir William Bryce Field, who, whatever political complications arise at home, pursue their duty unswervingly on the outposts of the empire. At his last words there was silence, the silence that marks a genuine effect. Then all at once, with vehement impressive force, the storm of enthusiasm broke its bounds. It was one of those stupendous bursts of feeling that no etiquette, no decorum is powerful enough to quell. As he resumed his seat, very pale, but exalted as men are exalted only once or twice in a lifetime, it rose about him, clamorous, spontaneous, undeniable. Near at hand were the faces of his party, excited and triumphant. Across the house were the faces of Seth Burrow and his ministry, uncomfortable and disturbed. The tumult swelled, then fell away, and in the partial lull that followed, Fraid leaned over the back of his seat. His quiet, dignified expression was unaltered, but his eyes were intensely bright. Chilcote, he whispered, I don't congratulate you or myself. I congratulate the country on possessing a great man. The remaining features of the debate followed quickly one upon the other. The electric atmosphere of the house possessed a strong incentive power. Immediately Loder's ovation had subsided, the Undersecretary for Foreign Affairs rose, and in a careful and non-incriminating reply defended the attitude of the government. Next came Frayde, who, in one of his rare and polished speeches, touched with much feeling upon his personal grief at the news reported from Persia, and made emphatic endorsement of Loder's words. Following Frayde came one or two dissentient liberals, and then Seth Burrow himself closed the debate. His speech was masterly and fluent, but though any disquietude he may have felt was well disguised under a tone of reassuring ease, the attempt to rehabilitate his position, already weakened in more than one direction, was a task beyond his strength. Amid extraordinary excitement the division followed, and with it a government defeat. It was not until half an hour after the votes had been taken that Loder, freed at last from persistent congratulations, found opportunity to look for Eve. In accordance with a promise made that morning, he was to find her waiting outside the ladies' gallery at the close of the debate. Disengaging himself from the group of men who had surrounded and followed him down the lobby, he discarded the lift and ran up the narrow staircase. Reaching the landing, he went forward hurriedly. Then, with a certain abrupt movement, he paused. 
In the doorway leading to the gallery Eve was waiting for him. The place was not brightly lighted and she was standing in the shadow, but it needed only a glance to assure his recognition. He could almost have seen in the dark that night so vivid were his perceptions. He took a step towards her, then again he stopped. In a second glance he realized that her eyes were bright with tears, and it was with the strangest sensation he had ever experienced that the knowledge flashed upon him. Here also he had struck the same note, the long-coveted note of supremacy. It had rung out full and clear as he stood in Chilcote's place dominating the house. It had besieged him clamorously as he passed along the lobbies amid a sea of friendly hands and voices. Now, in the quiet of the deserted gallery, it came home to him with deeper meaning from the eyes of Chilcote's wife. Without a thought he put out his hands and caught hers. "'I couldn't get away,' he said. "'I'm afraid I'm very late.' With a smile that scattered her tears, Eve looked up. "'Are you?' she said, laughing a little. "'I don't know what the time is. I scarcely know whether it's night or day.' Still holding one of her hands, he drew her down the stairs. But as they reached the last step, she released her fingers. "'In the carriage,' she said, with another little laugh of nervous happiness. At the foot of the stairs they were surrounded. Men whose faces Loder barely knew crowded about him. The intoxication of excitement was still in the air, the instinct that a new force had made itself felt, a new epoch been entered upon, stirred prophetically in every mind. Passing through the enthusiastic concourse of men, they came unexpectedly upon Fraid and Lady Sarah surrounded by a group of friends. The old statesman came forward instantly, and taking Loder's arm, walked with him to Chilcote's waiting brougham. He said little as they slowly made their way to the carriage, but the pressure of his fingers was tense and an unwanted color showed in his face. When Eve and Loder had taken their seats, he stepped to the edge of the curb. They were alone for the moment, and leaning close to the carriage, he put his hand through the open window. In silence he took Eve's fingers and held them in a long affectionate pressure. Then he released them and took Loder's hand. "'Good night, Chilcote,' he said. "'You have proved yourself worthy of her. Good night.' He turned quickly and rejoined his waiting friends. In another second the horses had wheeled round, and Eve and Loder were carried swiftly forward into the darkness. In the great moments of man's life woman comes before and after. Some shadow of this truth was in Eve's mind as she lay back in her seat with closed eyes and parted lips. It seemed that life came to her now for the first time, came in the glad, proud, satisfying tide of things accomplished. This was her hour, and the recognition of it brought the blood to her face in a sudden happy rush. There had been no need to precipitate its coming, it had been ordained from the first. Whether she desired it or not, whether she strove to draw it nearer or strove to ward it off, its coming had been inevitable. She opened her eyes suddenly and looked out into the darkness, the darkness throbbing with multitudes of lives, all awaiting, all desiring fulfillment. She was no longer lonely, no longer aloof. She was kin with all this pitiful, admirable, sinning, loving humanity. 
Again tears of pride and happiness filled her eyes. Then, suddenly, the thing she had waited for came to pass. Loder leaned close to her. She was conscious of his nearer presence, of his strong, masterful personality. With a thrill that caught her breath, she felt his arm about her shoulder and heard the sound of his voice. Eve, he said, I love you. Do you understand I love you? And drawing her close to him, he bent and kissed her. With Loder, to do was to do fully. When he gave, he gave generously. When he swept aside a barrier, he left no stone standing. He had been slow to recognize his capacities, slower still to recognize his feelings. But now that the knowledge came, he received it openly. In this matter of newly comprehended love, he gave no thought to either past or future. That they loved and were alone was all he knew or questioned. She was as much Eve, the one woman, as though they were together in the primeval garden, and in that spirit he claimed her. He neither spoke nor behaved extravagantly in that great moment of comprehension. He acted quietly with the completeness of purpose that he gave to everything. He had found a new capacity within himself, and he was strong enough to dread no weakness in displaying it. Holding her close to him, he repeated his declaration again and again, as though repetition ratified it. He found no need to question her feeling for him. He had divined it in a flash of inspiration as she stood waiting in the doorway of the gallery. But his own surrender was a different matter. As the carriage passed round the corner of Whitehall and dipped into the traffic of Piccadilly, he bent down again until her soft hair brushed his face. And the warm personal contact, the slight fresh smell of violets so suggestive of her presence, stirred him afresh. Eve, he said vehemently, do you understand? Do you know that I have loved you always, from the very first? As he said it, he bent still nearer, kissing her lips, her forehead, her hair. At the same moment the horses slackened speed and then stopped, arrested by one of the temporary blocks that so often occur in the traffic of Piccadilly Circus. Loder, preoccupied with his own feelings, scarcely noticed the halt, but Eve drew away from him laughing. "'You mustn't,' she said softly. "'Look!' The carriage had stopped beside one of the small islands that intersect the place. A group of pedestrians were crowded upon it under the light of the electric lamp, wayfarers who, like themselves, were awaiting a passage. Loder took a cursory glance at them, then turned back to Eve. "'What are they, after all, but men and women?' he said. "'They'd understand, every one of them.' He laughed in his turn. Nevertheless, he withdrew his arm. Her feminine thought for conventionalities appealed to him. It was an acknowledgment of dependency. For a while they sat silent, the light of the street lamp flickering through the glass of the window, the hum of voices and traffic coming to them in a continuous rise and fall of sound. At first the position was interesting, but as the seconds followed each other it gradually became irksome. Loder, watching the varying expressions of Eve's face, grew impatient of the delay, grew suddenly eager to be alone again in the fragrant darkness. Impelled by the desire, he leaned forward and opened the window. "'Let's find the meaning of this,' he said. "'Is there nobody to regulate the traffic?' 
As he spoke he half rose and leaned out of the window. There was a touch of imperious annoyance in his manner. Fresh from the realization of power, there was something irksome in this commonplace check to his desires. "'Isn't it possible to get out of this?' Eve heard him call to the coachman. Then she heard no more. He had leaned out of the carriage with the intention of looking onward towards the cause of the delay. Instead, by that magnetic attraction that undoubtedly exists, he looked directly in front of him at the group of people waiting on the little island. At one man who leaned against the lamp-post in an attitude of apathy, a man with a pallid, unshaven face and lusterless eyes who wore a cap drawn low over his forehead. He looked at this man, and the man saw and returned his glance. For a space that seemed interminable they held each other's eyes. Then, very slowly, Loder drew back into the carriage. As he dropped into his seat, Eve glanced at him anxiously. "'John,' she said, "'has anything happened? You look ill.' He turned to her and tried to smile. "'It's nothing,' he said, "'nothing to worry about.' He spoke quickly, but his voice had suddenly become flat. All the command, all the domination had dropped away from it. Eve bent close to him, her face lighting up with anxious tenderness. "'It was the excitement,' she said, "'the strain of tonight.' He looked at her, but he made no attempt to press the fingers that clasped his own. "'Yes,' he said slowly, "'yes, it was the excitement of tonight." and the reaction. End of chapter 25 Chapter 26 The next morning at eight o'clock, and again without breakfast, Loder covered the distance between Grosvenor Square and Clifford's Inn. He left Chilcote's house hastily, with a haste that only an urgent motive could have driven him to adopt. His steps were quick and uneven as he traversed the intervening streets, his shoulders lacked their decisive pose, and his pale face was marked with shadows beneath the eyes, shadows that bore witness to the sleepless nights spent in pacing Chilcote's vast and lonely room. By the curious effect of circumstances, the likeness between the two men had never been more significantly marked than on that morning of April 19th, when Loder walked along the pavements crowded with early workers and brisk with insistent news-vendors already alive to the value of last night's political crisis. The irony of this last element in the day's concerns came to him fully when one newsboy, more energetic than his fellows, thrust a paper in front of him. Sensation in the house, sir, speech by Mr. Chilcote, government defeat. For a moment Loder stopped, and his face reddened. The tide of emotions still ran strong. His hand went instinctively to his pocket, then his lips set. He shook his head and walked on. With the same hard expression about his mouth, he turned into Clifford's Inn, passed through his own doorway, and mounted the stairs. This time there was no milk-can on the threshold of his rooms, and the door yielded to his pressure without the need of a key. With a strange sensation of reluctance he walked into the narrow passage and paused, uncertain which room to enter first. As he stood hesitating a voice from the sitting-room settled the question. "'Who's there?' it called irritably. "'What do you want?' Without further ceremony the intruder pushed the door open 
and entered the room. As he did so he drew a quick breath, whether of disappointment or relief it was impossible to say. Whether he had hoped for or dreaded it, Chilcote was conscious. As Loder entered he was sitting by the cheerless grate, the ashes of yesterday's fire showing charred and dreary where the sun touched them. His back was to the light, and about his shoulders was an old plaid rug. Behind him on the table stood a cup, a teapot, and the can of milk. Farther off a kettle was set to boil upon a tiny spirit stove. In all strong situations we are more or less commonplace. Loder's first remark as he glanced round the disordered room seemed strangely inefficient. "'Where's Robbins?' he asked in a brusque voice. His mind teemed with big considerations, yet this was his first involuntary question. Chilcote had started at the entrance of his visitor. Now he sat staring at him, his hand holding the arms of his chair. "'Where's Robbins?' Loder asked again. "'I don't know. She—I—we didn't hit it off. She's gone. Went yesterday.' He shivered and drew the rug about him. Chilcote, Loder began sternly, then he paused. There was something in the other's look and attitude that arrested him. A change of expression passed over his own face. He turned about with an abrupt gesture, pulled off his coat and threw it on a chair. Then, crossing deliberately to the fireplace, he began to rake the ashes from the grate. Within a few minutes he had a fire crackling where the bed of dead cinders had been, and having finished the task he rose slowly from his knees, wiped his hands, and crossed to the table. On the small spirit stove the kettle had boiled and the cover was lifting and falling with a tinkling sound. Blowing out the flame, Loder picked up the teapot, and with hands that were evidently accustomed to the task set about making the tea. During the whole operation he never spoke, though all the while he was fully conscious of Chilcote's puzzled gaze. The tea ready he poured it into the cup and carried it across the room. "'Drink this,' he said laconically. "'The fire will be up presently.' Chilcote extended a cold, shaky hand. "'You see?' he began. But Loder checked him almost savagely. "'I do, as well as though I had followed you from Piccadilly last night. You've been hanging about God knows where till the small hours of the morning. Then you've come back, slunk back, starving for your damned poison.' and shivering with cold. You've settled the first part of the business, but the cold has still to be reckoned with. Drink the tea. I've something to say to you." He mastered his vehemence, and walking to the window stood looking down into the court. His eyes were blank, his face hard, his ears heard nothing but the faint sound of Chilcote's swallowing, the click of the cup against his teeth. For a time that seemed interminable he stood motionless. Then, when he judged the tea finished, he turned slowly. Chilcote had drawn closer to the fire. He was obviously braced by the warmth, and the apathy that hung about him was to some extent dispelled. Still moving slowly, Loder went towards him, and relieving him of the empty cup, stood looking down at him. Chilcote, he said very quietly, I've come to tell you that the thing must end. After he spoke there was a prolonged pause. Then, as if shaken with sudden consciousness, Chilcote rose. The rug dropped from one shoulder and hung down ludicrously. His hand caught the back of the chair for support. His unshaven face looked absurd and repulsive in its sudden expression of scared inquiry. Loder involuntarily turned away. 
I mean it, he said slowly. It's over. We've come to the end. But why? Chilcote articulated blankly. Why? Why? In his confusion he could think of no better word. Because I throw it up. My side of the bargain's off. Again Chilcote's lips parted stammeringly. The apathy caused by physical exhaustion and his recently administered drug was passing from him. The hopelessly shattered condition of mind and body was showing through it like a skeleton through a thin covering of flesh. But why, he said again, why? Still Loder avoided the frightened surprise of his eyes. Because I withdraw, he answered doggedly. Then suddenly Chilcote's tongue was loosened. Loder, he cried excitedly, you can't do it. God, man, you can't do it. To reassure himself he laughed, a painfully thin echo of his old sarcastic laugh. If it's a matter of greater opportunity, he began, or of more money. But Loder turned upon him. Be quiet, he said so menacingly that the other stopped. Then by an effort he conquered himself. It's not a matter of money, Chilcote, he said quietly. It's a matter of necessity. He brought the word out with difficulty. Chilcote glanced up. Necessity, he repeated. How? Why? The reiteration roused Loder. Because there was a great scene in the house last night, he began hurriedly, because when you go back you'll find that Sethborough has smashed up over the assassination of Sir William Bryce Field at Meshed and that you have made your mark in a big speech. And because... Abruptly he stopped. The thing he had come to say, the thing he had meant to say, would not be said. Either his tongue or his resolution failed him, and for the instant he stood as silent and almost as ill at ease as his companion. Then all at once inspiration came to him in the suggestion of a well-nigh forgotten argument by which he might influence Chilcote and save his own self-respect. "'It's all over, Chilcote,' he said more quietly. It has run itself out. And in a dozen sentences he sketched the story of Lillian Astrup, her past relations with himself, her present suspicions. It was not what he had meant to say. It was not what he had come to say. But it served the purpose. It saved him humiliation. Chilcote listened to the last word. Then, as the other finished, he dropped nervously back into his chair. "'Good heavens, man,' he said. Why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you warn me, instead of filling my mind with your political position? Your political position? He laughed unsteadily. The long spells of indulgence that had weakened his already maimed faculties showed in the laugh, in the sudden breaking of his voice. You must do something, Loder, he added nervously, checking his amusement. You must do something. Loder looked down at him. No, he said decisively. It's your turn now. It's you who've got to do something. Chilcote's face turned a shade grayer. I can't, he said below his breath. Can't? Oh, yes, you can. We can all do anything. It's not too late. There's just sufficient time. Chilcote, he added suddenly, don't you see that the thing has been madness all along, has been like playing with the most infernal explosives? You may think whatever you have faith in that nobody has been smashed up. You are going back. Do you understand me? You are going back, now, today, before it's too late. There was a great change in Loder. His strong, imperturbable face was stirred. He was moved in both voice and manner. 
Time after time he repeated his injunction, reasoning, expostulating, insisting. It almost seemed that he fought some strenuous invisible force rather than the shattered man before him. Chilcote moved nervously in his seat. It was the first real clash of personalities. He felt it, recognized it by instinct. The sense of domination had fallen on him. He knew himself impotent in the other's hands. Whatever he might attempt in moments of solitude, he possessed no voice in presence of this invincible second self. For a while he struggled. He did not fight. He struggled to resist. Then, lifting his eyes, he met Loder's. "'And what will you do?' he said weakly. Loder returned his questioning gaze, but almost immediately he turned aside. "'I?' he said. "'Oh, I shall leave London.'" End of chapter 26 Chapter 27 But Loder did not leave London, and the hour of two on the day following his dismissal of Chilcote found him again in his sitting-room. He sat at the center table surrounded by a cloud of smoke. A pipe was between his lips and the morning's newspapers lay in a heap beside his pillow. To the student of humanity his attitude was intensely interesting. It was the attitude of a man trammeled by the knowledge of his strength. Before him, as he sat smoking, stretched a future of absolute nothingness, and towards this blank future one portion of his consciousness, a struggling and as yet scarcely sentient portion, pushed him inevitably, while another, a vigorous persistent human portion, cried to him to pause. So actual, so clamorous was this silent mental combat that had raged unceasingly since the moment of his renunciation that at last in physical response to it he pushed back his chair. "'It's too late,' he said aloud. "'I'm a fool. It's too late.' Then abruptly, astonishingly, as though in direct response to his spoken thought, the door opened and Chilcote walked into the room. Slowly Loder rose and stared at him. The feeling he acknowledged to himself was anger, but below the anger a very different sensation ran riotously strong. And it was in time to this second feeling, this sudden lawless joy, that his pulses beat as he turned a cold face on the intruder. Well, he said sternly, but Chilcote was impervious to sternness. He was mentally shaken and distressed, though outwardly irreproachable, even to the violets in the lapel of his coat the violets that for a week past had been brought each morning to the door of Loder's rooms by Eve's maid. For one second, as Loder's eyes rested on the flowers, a sting of ungovernable jealousy shot through him, then as suddenly it died away, superseded by another feeling, a feeling of new spontaneous joy. Worn by Chilcote or by himself, the flowers were a symbol. Well, he said again, in a gentler voice, Chilcote had walked to the table and laid down his hat. His face was white and the muscles of his lips twitched nervously as he drew off his gloves. "'Thank heaven you're here,' he said shortly. "'Give me something to drink.' In silence Loder brought out the whiskey and set it on the table. Then instinctively he turned aside. As plainly as though he saw the action, he mentally figured Chilcote's furtive glance, the furtive movement of his fingers to his waistcoat pocket, the hasty dropping of the tabloids into the glass. For an instance the sense of his tacit connivance came to him sharply, the next he flung it from him. 
the human inner voice was whispering its old watchword. The strong man has no time to waste over his weaker brother. When he heard Chilcote lay down his tumbler, he looked back again. "'Well, what is it?' he said. "'What have you come for?' He strove resolutely to keep his voice severe, but try as he might, he could not quite subdue the eager force that lay behind his words. Once again, as on the night of their second interchange, life had become a phoenix, rising to fresh existence even while he sifted its ashes. Well, he said, once again. Chilcote had set down his glass. He was nervously passing his handkerchief across his lips. There was something in the gesture that attracted Loder. Looking at him more attentively, he saw what his own feelings and the other's conventional dress had blinded him to, the almost piteous panic and excitement in his visitor's eyes. "'Something's gone wrong,' he said with abrupt intuition. Chilcote started. "'Yes. No. That is, yes,' he stammered. Loder moved round the table. "'Something's gone wrong,' he repeated. "'And you've come to tell me.' The tone unnerved Chilcote. He suddenly dropped into a chair. "'It, it wasn't my fault,' he began. "'I, I have had a horrible time.' Loder's lips tightened. "'Yes,' he said. "'Yes, I understand.' The other glanced up with a gleam of his old suspicion. "'Twas all my nerves, Loder. "'Of course, yes, of course.' Loder's interruption was curt. Chilcote eyed him doubtfully. Then recollection took the place of doubt, and a change passed over his expression. "'It wasn't my fault,' he began hastily. "'On my soul it wasn't. It was Crapham's beastly fault for showing her into the morning-room. Loder kept silent. His curiosity had flared into sudden life at the other's words, but he feared to break the shattered train of thought even by a word. In the silence Chilcote moved uneasily. "'You see,' he went on at last, "'when I was here with you I—I I felt strong. I—I—' I, He stopped. "'Yes, yes, when you were here with me you felt strong?' "'Yes, that's it. While I was here I felt I could do the thing. But when I went home, when I went up to my rooms—' Again he paused, passing his handkerchief across his forehead. "'When you went up to your rooms—' Loder strove hard to keep his control. "'To my room. Oh, I—I I forgot about that. I forget about the night.' He hesitated confusedly. "'All I remember is the coming down to breakfast next morning, this morning, at twelve o'clock.' Loder turned to the table and poured himself some whiskey. "'Yes,' he acquiesced in a very quiet voice. At the word Chilcote rose from his seat. His disquietude was very evident. Oh, there was breakfast on the table when I came downstairs, breakfast with flowers and a horrible, dazzling glare of sun. It was then, Loder, as I stood and looked into the room, that the impossibility of it all came to me, that I knew I couldn't stand it, couldn't go on. Loder swallowed his whiskey slowly. His sense of overpowering curiosity held him very still, but he made no effort to prompt his companion. Again Chilcote shifted his position agitatedly. "'It had to be done,' he said disjointedly. "'I had to do it, then and there. The things were on the bureau, the pens and ink and telegraph forms. They tempted me.' Loder laid down his glass suddenly. An exclamation rose to his lips, but he checked it. At the slight sound of the tumbler touching the table, Chilcote turned. 
but there was no expression on the other's face to affright him. They tempted me, he repeated hastily. They seemed like magnets. They seemed to draw me towards them. I sat at the bureau staring at them for a long time. Then a terrible compulsion seized me, something you could never understand, and I caught up the nearest pen and wrote just what was in my mind. It wasn't a telegram, properly speaking. It was more a letter. I wanted you back, and I had to make myself plain. The writing of the message seemed to steady me. The mere forming of the words quieted my mind. I was almost cool when I got up from the bureau and pressed the bell. The bell? Yes, I rang for a servant. I had to send the wire myself, so I had to get a cab. His voice rose to irritability. I pressed the bell several times, but the thing had gone wrong. Twouldn't work. At last I gave it up and went into the corridor to call someone. Well? In the intense suspense of the moment the word escaped loader. Oh, I went out of the room, but there at the door, before I could call anybody, I knocked up against that idiot greening. He was looking for me, for you, rather, about some beastly work affair. I tried to explain that I wasn't in a state for business. I tried to shake him off, but he was worse than Blessington. At last, to be rid of the fellow, I went with him to the study. But the telegram, Loder began. Then again he checked himself. Yes, yes, I understand, he added quietly. I'm getting to the telegram. I wish you wouldn't jar me with sudden questions. I wasn't in the study more than a minute, more than five or six minutes. His voice became confused. The strain of the connected recital was telling upon him. With nervous haste he made a rush for the end of the story. I wasn't more than seven or eight minutes in the study. Then, as I came downstairs, Crapham met me in the hall. He told me that Lillian Astrup had called and wished to see me, and that he had shown her into the morning-room. The morning-room? Loder suddenly stepped back from the table. The morning-room, with your telegram lying on the bureau? His sudden speech and movement startled Chilcote. The blood rushed to his face, then died out, leaving it ashen. Don't do that, Loder, he cried. I, I can't bear it. With an immense effort Loder controlled himself. Sorry, he said. Go on. I'm going on. I tell you, I'm going on. I got a horrid shock when Crapham told me. Your story came clattering through my mind. I knew Lillian had come to see you. I knew there was going to be a scene. But the telegram, the telegram. Chilcote paid no heed to the interruption. He was following his own train of ideas. I knew she had come to see you. I knew there was going to be a scene. When I got to the morning room my hand was shaking so that I could scarcely turn the handle. Then, as the door opened, I could have cried out with relief. Eve was there as well. Eve? Yes, I don't think I was ever so glad to see her in my life. He laughed almost hysterically. I was quite civil to her, and she was quite sweet to me. Again he laughed. Loder's lips tightened. You see, it saved the situation. Even if Lillian wanted to be nasty, she couldn't while Eve was there. We talked for about ten minutes. We were quite an amiable trio. Then Lillian told me why she called. She wanted me to make a fourth in a theater party at the Arcadian tonight, and I, I was so pleased and so relieved that I said yes. He paused and laughed again unsteadily. In his tense anxiety, Loder ground his heel into the floor. Go on, he said fiercely. Go on. Don't, Chilcote exclaimed. I'm going on. I'm going on. He passed his handkerchief across his lips. 
we talked for ten minutes or so, and then Lillian left. I went with her to the hall door, but Crapham was there too, so I was still safe. She laughed and chatted and seemed in high spirits as we crossed the hall, and she was still smiling as she waved to me from her motor. But then, Loder, then, as I stood in the hall, it all came to me suddenly. I remembered that Lillian must have been alone in the morning-room before Eve found her. I remembered the telegram. I ran back to the room, meaning to question Eve as to how long Lillian had been alone, but she had left the room. I ran to the bureau, but the telegram wasn't there. Gone? Yes, gone. That's why I've come straight here. For a moment they confronted each other. Then, moved by a sudden impulse, Loder pushed Chilcote aside and crossed the room. An instant later the opening and shutting of doors, the hasty pulling out of drawers and moving of boxes came from the bedroom. Chilcote, shaken and nervous, stood for a minute where his companion had left him. At last, impelled by curiosity, he too crossed the narrow passage and entered the second room. The full light streamed in through the open window, the keen spring air blew freshly across the housetops, and on the window-sill a band of grimy joyous sparrows twittered and preened themselves. In the middle of the room stood Loder. His coat was off, and round him on chairs and floor lay an array of waistcoats, gloves, and ties. For a space Chilcote stood in the doorway staring at him. Then his lips parted, and he took a step forward. Loder, he said anxiously, Loder, what are you going to do? Loder turned. His shoulders were stiff, his face alight with energy. I'm going back, he said, to unravel the tangle you have made. End of chapter 27 Recording by Tom Weiss, Tom's Audiobooks.com.